0: but this show will continue to help you understand the things that affect your health while looking for unexpected discoveries along the way. It will also explore thought-provoking ideas and questions like this one.
1: Is medicine going back to the future? As researchers explore the therapeutic potential of psychedelics for treating depression, trauma, and other ailments. Here to help us answer that question is Dr. Natalie Gukasian. Dr. Kukasian is an assistant professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research. She's also the co-author of numerous studies on the use of psychedelics in therapeutic settings. I'm really looking forward to speaking with you about psychedelics in general and your research on psychedelics specifically. So before we dig into some of your work, can you just tell us what are psychedelics?
0: So the term uh, for these drugs has evolved over time. Um, Back when I was in medical school, I think the term that was most in in favor was hallucinogens. Um, And psychedelics is yet another term. Some people call these drugs entheogens. Um, At the end of the day, though, when we talk about psychedelics in 2022, what we mean is a family of drugs that are that share a common mechanism of being um, agonists or partial agonists at the serotonin 2A receptor. Um, we call these classic psychedelics, um, but there are other drugs that are sometimes um, sort of discussed in the same breath as these as having similar sorts of subjective effects. And those include um, ketamine and MDMA, even though those essentially have sort of a different mechanism of action. But what we mean is this this group of drugs like LSD, psilocybin, DMT, and others that uh, work by this serotonin 2A mechanism um, and tend to produce very profound subjective effects um, that sometimes can be interpreted as being very meaningful or even spiritually significant to some folks and that are increasingly showing themselves to be potentially um, quite useful therapeutically, which is what we're investigating now.
1: Looking back to medical school, when we did talk about some of these drugs, you're right, we did call them hallucinogens. Um, And so it's like this group of of drugs that kind of alters your reality in some way or alters your sense of self in some way. Um, Some of them act differently in the brain than others, but the ones we're specifically talking about today are sort of what the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, psilocybin, and also LSD. Uh, so let's talk a little bit more about those two specifically. What what happens in your brain when you ingest that drug? So let's say we take in psilocybin. You you mentioned a specific sort of pathway. Can you talk us through that a little bit?
0: Yeah. And so we're still learning exactly what goes on in the brain and which parts of the brain are most important for the effects of psilocybin and other drugs like it. Um But what we know so far is that, again, the serotonin 2A receptor is key. Um, And the serotonin 2A receptor is found in many, many parts of the brain, also peripherally. Um, But so far, we know that um, it's probably a certain subset of um, neurons in the layer 5 area of the cortex and maybe other parts of the brain, in particular the colostrum, which is this area that uh, sort of connects the thalamus with other uh, higher areas of the brain. So what, in terms
1: of your own research with psilocybin?
0: Here is a quick word from our sponsor.
2: We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows from the Nespod studios. Join us as we give you the best of the best health and wellness updates you can rely on for the treatment of chronic health problems.
1: Can you tell me when you're thinking about developing the study, when you're thinking about the methods, how do you figure out what dose you're going to give to somebody? Is there a risk that you may induce an overdose
0: in someone with with your study? So um, one nice thing about classic psychedelics is that they tend to be quite safe. Like in medical school, we all learned about the LD50 or the lethal dose uh, 50, shall we say, like in... um, pharmacology studies and the the dose that's needed to produce a a real toxicity with psychedelics is many, many times greater than the um, functional dose essentially. So usually we're not worried about causing, you know, a physiologically dangerous overdose, um, but it is a great question about how we actually come up with the real, you know, number of milligrams we're going to give to this or that person. So um, in the earlier research studies that came out of our group here at Hopkins, um, usually we defaulted to a weight-based dosing. Um, And the number of milligrams in part was based on just retrospective research on the earlier, like the first wave of of this kind of research, which happened between the 40s and the 70s. over time, actually, our group also came out with a paper analyzing the relationship between the absolute dose that people received and um, like their weight, for example, and what, what effects they had as a result. And we found essentially that there's not really much utility to doing a weight-based dosage. And most people probably uh, tend to do well with around a 25 milligram dose of psilocybin, for example. So that's enough to to create this like usually quite a, a powerful subjective experience without a ton of, um, you, know, un, you know, unwanted side effects, like too much nausea or a headache or something like that. Um, so that's the usual dosage range that we go with, but it does vary from study to study. For example, we have a study right now uh, looking at the effects of cell side assisted therapy for folks with early stages of Alzheimer's disease and we had to be very careful about dosing, you know, this elderly group of participants. Um, and in a similar vein there, you know, my, my other main area of research right now is looking at psilocybin-assisted therapy for people with anorexia nervosa. Um, and we knew going into this study that anecdotally, people seem to actually be less responsive to psilocybin. And so we had to adjust our dosage for that, which, you know, we initially had to be careful about because this is a novel, um, and fairly high-risk group of patients, and we weren't really sure what to expect, but uh, eventually we sort of saw that the lower doses were indeed safe um, and and indeed that folks did look like they were needing higher doses to achieve comparable effects to other uh, uh, participant populations that we've worked with before.
1: I think what you said was is just so super interesting, and so you're pointing out that with the classic psychedelics, this is not really something that you're thinking about when you're thinking about dosing. Is that
0: accurate? Yes, but also, you know, there's there is a dose that we think about that, you know, a minimum is needed to produce the kinds of subjective effects that we've seen are actually correlated with positive long-term outcomes. And there is such a thing as, as having too high a dose. Even in that range, it's not physiologically dangerous. Um, so for example, in our earlier studies published in 2016 where we were looking at the effects of psilocybin in people with cancer-related um, anxiety, um, the initial dose that we had gone with was like a 30 milligrams per 70 kilo dose, and we eventually had to actually bring that down because people were experiencing quite a bit of nausea with it um, and we were just kind of like uncomfortable. Um, but it wasn't necessarily, you know, dangerous as far as we could tell, apart from just being not very pleasant. Um, but there are, you know, all sorts of, uh, there are all sorts of interesting case reports out there, including um, this one I read, I can't remember the journal right now, but of people who accidentally took um, doses of LSD that were maybe like on the order of 100 to 1,000 times more than they should have taken. And um, they did end up in the ICU for some time. They had some internal bleeding. But at the end of the day, they all recovered and seemingly were fine after the fact.
1: OK, so it is really important for, for people to realize that there are absolutely some physical risks um, to this besides, you know, some of the the psychological changes that you might experience. So let's talk about your your recent work. So, you know, your center, Johns Hopkins Center for Psychedelic um, and consciousness research, I, I was looking at the website and you're using psilocybin to, to study a lot of things, um, depression, um, substance abuse, um, smoking cessation, as you mentioned, anorexia, and you've even studied it in sort of healthy volunteers. Right now, um, you just recently published a paper on major depression and psilocybin. Can you tell us a little bit about that research?
0: Yeah, so this was a follow-up manuscript to something we had published in JAMA psychiatry uh, at the end of 2021, Uh, and essentially we had a group of 24 patients who were randomized either to receive immediate treatment with psilocybin um, or were delayed by an eight-week period and then later received the the same sort of treatment course. So initially we published the eight-week difference between these groups, which allowed us to compare um, and sort of control for any compounds related to spontaneous improvement in depression, which we know happens. Um, But we were also interested in understanding what happens to these patients down the line, right? Because it's not just the immediate efficacy that we're concerned with. Like anybody who's suffered with depression knows that what's what's sought after is sort of sustained remission. Um, And. What we did was we just followed the entire cohort um, for a period of about one year following their final psilocybin session, and we recorded their depression severity, and we found essentially that um, the rates of treatment response and remission were quite similar to what we saw uh, one week and four weeks after their acute treatment period, which was two doses of psilocybin with some, uh, some psychotherapy wrapped around it. Um, And those rates were, you know, in the 70s for treatment response, meaning about 70% or a little more than 70% had uh, an improvement of 50% or more in their depression severity as measured by the grid d And uh, a number about like in the 50s reported remission or reported that their symptoms were on par with remission according to those scales. There is a caveat to those results, which is that You know a lot can happen over the course of a year and there are many many confounds which are just part of the course with when when you think about research with humans Um, and quite a quite a lot of people actually did pursue other treatment options in that time so a third of the group actually reported at some point in that follow-up period um, being on some sort of daily antidepressant drug and a larger percentage something like around 42 percent reported some form of psychotherapy but that varied quite a lot. It could have been, you know, just one or two sessions, or their usual weekly therapy with somebody. Um, but all in all, even those people who, you know, did go back onto treatment were better uh, in their depression severity compared to baseline. And so we are, you know, I think this was a, a small but a hopeful signal that this might actually be a, a treatment option that could produce sustained relief from depression for at least a subset of patients.
1: That's really interesting. So can you walk me through what it's like to be a volunteer for this type of study? So you agree, you come in, and then what is the experience
0: like? Yeah, So it's quite involved. And I think uh, it's important to stress that that part of it is that it's not just simply giving you some psilocybin and calling it a day. So there's actually quite an involved screening process uh, for this study to occur over a period of two days. So people uh, who are interested in the study meet with, um, you know, a psychiatrist or psychologist or other mental health professional to do a fairly long assessment, a structured clinical interview. They're seen by an internist um, to review their medical history and make sure that they're medically safe to proceed. Um, In some cases, we might, you know, talk to uh, their provider just to get a sense of their history and confirm some, you know, just to get some collateral information, Uh, do some blood work and EKG. So there's quite a lot that goes into making sure that somebody seems to be a good and safe candidate for this kind of treatment. Um, After they're cleared and they consent to participate, um, they are assigned two facilitators. at least one of whom has formal mental health treatment training. So usually a, you know, a therapist or a psychiatrist or psychologist. Um, and they meet with that person or set of so the two therapists meet with the uh, participant for about six to eight hours in total leading up to their psilocybin sessions. And during that time, which we call a preparation period, uh, patients are essentially you know the goal is to sort of build a rapport between the participant and the facilitators. Um, so as part of that process, you know the, the participant will share some details about their life, their life story, what, what led them to the study. And the facilitators will um, prepare the participant about what to expect on the psilocybin session day and afterward. So after that's complete, they proceed to their first session. Uh, and in this study, they received 20 milligrams per 70 kilos for the first one. And this is um kind of an all-day affair. The effects of psilocybin last about four to six hours for most people. So participants arrive in the morning, they settle in, we do um just a few tests preliminarily and get their vital signs and things like that. And um they are given the psilocybin and they're that's we, we spend all day with them basically. So both the facilitators are there. Um, once the drug effects start to come on, the participants are usually encouraged to enter the default position for the day, which involves laying on a couch um, with eye shades and headphones on that are playing a pre-selected set of music. And folks are encouraged to attend to their inner experience of whatever's going on. Um, meanwhile, the therapists are actually taking a pretty hands-off approach. They are... Um, Mostly just hanging back, allowing the participant to be with whatever's going on. If the participant seems to be in distress, you know they will attend to the participant, make sure that they're okay. Um, and at the end of the day, you know they usually the drug effects were off. Somebody comes to pick them up. Um, and in the day after, and about one week after, we have follow-up meetings. We call them integration meetings to discuss the contents of the day, what it was like for them. And you know if there were psychological insights or not, we sort of talk about how to integrate that moving forward. And so those occur for the, the follow-up meetings happen for both um, psilocybin sessions. And then there are sort of subsequent follow-up visits spaced further and further apart for the remainder of the study.
1: So what are some of the things that people are experiencing?
0: Sometimes I like to make a prediction about what a person will experience and I am wrong pretty much every time. <laughs> Hmm. Even in even in, in sort of a general sense, um, but in the sorts of experiences that we see, vary from feeling nothing to having an extremely personally meaningful experience or a very insightful experience, um, or even one that seems spiritual in some sense. Um, it can be accompanied by quite strong emotions, good or bad. Um, some of those you know we call it a challenging experience when when they're having a particularly intense or rough um, part of their session day and that's actually not that uncommon about a third of our participants in um, some of our earlier studies would experience some portion of the day to be quite challenging um, so it can look many different ways, and you raise it a very important question that I think a lot of people are interested in, and that one that we've looked into, including in this most recently published paper, where we were trying to see, all right, is there anything about the acute effects that we can look to um, to determine what, what to expect in the long, long run from this? Um, in previous studies, we identified um, a number of factors that seemed important. So one was, the score that somebody reported on their uh, on something called the mystical experience questionnaire, which is a 30 item um, validated questionnaire that measures the degree to which um, a person has an experience that is, it's not that it's supernatural in any sense, but it's characterized by, um, you know, a feeling of sacredness or uh, ineffability or loss of sense of time or self or space. Um, and so previously, the score on the MEQ, meaning the more mystical the experience was, um, that score tended to be correlated with improved long-term outcomes, meaning changes, positive changes in their mood and their relationships and their positive behavior change, things like that. Um, We tried to see if that existed here. And interestingly, we did not find a correlation (laughs) between the MEQ score and longer term changes in the depression score. Uh, A somewhat confusing finding that we have here that we reported alongside that, though, is that while there were no correlations between MEQ and decreases in depression, there was a correlation between MEQ and sort of this like absolute number score um, on something called the, you know, the well-being, the overall well-being score, which doesn't come from a validated questionnaire, but essentially asks folks Um, On a Likert scale, like a seven-point scale, you know, to what degree would you say that your relationships or mood has been improved as a result of the psilocybin experience? So people are attributing some benefit to it, um, and in some cases, it seems correlated to those mystical qualities, but the depression change doesn't seem to be as correlated. Um, I think some folks are worried sometimes that you know, having a challenging experience. Um might lead to negative effects in the long term, but actually when it's when psilocybin is given in this kind of supported setting, people are prepared for that possibility, and we know how to work with it as it's coming up and as we work through the integration sessions together. so um, in in most cases, when somebody does have a challenging experience, it's actually nothing to worry about and, and folks can actually do quite well after having a portion of their day uh, be like that.
1: That's really I was going to ask you about that in terms of, you know, if you do have any, you know, what you're calling sort of a challenging experience or a lot of sort of negative um feelings during the experience, does that can that then kind of spiral you downward? But it sounds like with the priming and the work that you do beforehand, um, and the work that you do then afterward to help integrate the experience and sort of debrief and talk through it that you haven't really seen that happen?
0: For the most part, yeah. I mean, there, there are exceptions to everything. And I can think of, you know, some cases where somebody really did have quite a challenging experience. And from what we could tell, you know, they, they didn't do well afterward. But I, I'd say for the majority of cases where that's happened, um, we're, we're able to to work with that. In the, in the follow-up as it's together and it looks quite different for everybody you know for some it's uh, here is a quick word from our sponsor
2: we take this few seconds off to inform you our valued loyal listener about the best health and fitness podcast shows from the nespod studios join us as we give you the best of the best health and wellness updates you can rely on for the treatment of chronic health problems
0: embodied or somatic kind of experience. For others, it's, you know, imagery or um, emotions of some sort. Um, And more often than not, there is, you know, some material there to work with.
1: I want to take a step back in terms of how you're delivering that dose. So is that a synthetic drug that you're giving or is it the actual...
0: Mushroom. I think a lot of folks, when they hear about psilocybin, they just imagine that it's mushrooms that we're giving. But in actuality, <laughs> it's a synthetic, <laughs> it's a synthetic <laughs> drug that's made in a lab and that is, you know, quality tested and um, maintained in a, you know, in our pharmacy to make sure that it's that it, that it is what we say it is. Um, the trouble with deriving psilocybin from the 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 mushroom itself is that the the contents and the Uh, the the sort of concentration of psilocybin can vary quite a lot um, and actually can degrade over time, making it kind of difficult if you're storing the psilocybin for some time or the psilocybin mushrooms for some time to actually accurately determine what dose is being given. So um, for a number of reasons, we actually use synthetic psilocybin in our studies.
1: You mentioned that it's quite an involved process to get into one of these studies or your studies. So what are some of the exclusion criteria? What are some of the things that would make you consider someone not a great subject for your study?
0: Some of the main conditions we try to screen out for um, in our studies to date include any kind of um, psychotic disorder or a bipolar spectrum disorder. Um, in the participant or in their first-degree relatives, as there have been some studies that have shown that um, folks who have a first-degree relative with one of those conditions actually have a significant risk of adverse outcomes, such as their own precipitated episode of mania or psychosis. Um, In terms of health conditions, we try to be careful about folks who have any kind of cardiac problem or history of a stroke, just because the psilocybin experience usually is associated with an increase in heart rate and blood pressure, and we want to avoid any kind of cardiovascular events. Um, Epilepsy uh, is another contraindication as it might um, increase your risk of having a seizure. Um, Another, it's not exactly an exclusion criterion, but folks who are currently taking an antidepressant have to taper off because the psilocybin, or the, the antidepressants actually can blunt the effects of psilocybin. Um, And there's some interesting and like, frankly, kind of concerning data that's coming out of secondary analyses of existing trials showing that folks who had, uh, even those who had tapered off, you know, the folks who had had recent use actually seem to have less of a therapeutic effect following both psilocybin and MDMA, Um, which, you know, is concerning to me because I know that a lot of the folks who might be interested in this kind of treatment are currently being treated with those kinds of drugs. Um, And we don't really know yet, you know, how long that kind of effect persists beyond the tapering period, um, or if that can be overcome by a higher dose or more doses, for example.
1: I'm really curious, because I know in all health professions now, we're really, really thinking about health equity, and how we're bringing some of our work into, we're basically creating protocols that ensure that we are um, getting data in an equitable way or uh, incorporating populations that may not have access to this kind of, um, these types of studies. So what are you all specifically doing to think about that? Do you have protocols to ensure health equity? How how do you and your, your center, other researchers at your center think about this
0: question? Yeah, so this is a really important question. And unfortunately, for a number of reasons, psychedelic research has actually historically um, undersampled uh, populations who are underserved. Um, it, You know, part of it, you know, some people think that it's related to, you know, just a particular kind of person who's interested in psychedelics, that this is sort of like a white person sort of thing. But it's pretty pretty clear in our research if you look at our samples, like a lot of the time it's 90% white people. A lot of the time most of those people are actually very highly educated. Um, and so this is something we are really trying to work on. Um, we are trying to partner with organizations in the community to um, essentially facilitate discussions about this, at least just to get the conversation going. Um, in Baltimore and specifically with Johns Hopkins, you know, we're sort of in a setting where there's quite a lot of, um, history between our institution and the community of harm, um, and mistreatment. And that's sort of another barrier that we have here specifically. And one that I think can only be addressed by talking with one another, at least in the beginning, you know, it's, um, cause at the end of the day, this is research. This is not a therapy that's been proven to be effective and safe at scale. Um, And at the very least, I think folks just need to be informed about what we're doing, why we're doing it, what the risks are, what the potential benefits might be. Um, You know, there are groups out there who are um, specifically trying to connect with um, people of color um, or under other underserved individuals in the, community and um, you know a lot of it revolves around conversations around how psychedelics have been used by indigenous groups for millennia and so that's sort of like a you know another thing that's going on in parallel um, some of those groups you know are coming from an angle of using psychedelics in a, a kind of an underground way so that's something we kind of have to tread carefully with in terms of involving ourselves with those groups so it's kind of a complicated situation but one that we are, actively trying to work on here at Hopkins. For a lot of
1: cultures, ancient cultures and ancient traditions, that there is some use of these types of substances. You know, I think to my own spiritual tradition where there is, uh, you know, a whole day and night dedicated to the use of these types of, uh, you know, meditation and these types of, of uh, substances um, to induce this this Meditative state and th- this sort of um, spiritual experience, um, which you allude to um, with the work that you're doing as well. So I wonder about that sometimes in terms of medicalizing and commercializing some of these these substances. Do you have any thoughts or about that?
0: Yes, <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a, a landmine, <laughs> uh, a, a field of landmines there. But um, you know, at the end of the day, I think i've I've been convinced so far you know by the results we've had to date that this really could be um, potentially useful for people who are suffering quite a lot with mental health conditions and I think at the end of the day um, moving forward with trying to learn about whether this is really safe and effective at large is uh, a net good it's a net positive to see you know that we can at least make these treatments available to people in a way that they um can be done safely and in a way that they're like insurance can cover theoretically right um it's a it's a whole other world really of people who are using these drugs for other kinds of purposes some of them w- might actually like, overlap with mental health issues right sort of spiritual practices and um you know traditions that have been handed down over generations for people um and it's, you know, as someone who's not an expert in some of those things, it's hard for me to comment specifically. I, I think I think that at the end of the day, um, we ought to continue to, trying to determine whether this can be actually more accessible to people who are suffering with mental health issues.
1: Yeah. No, I, I appreciate your, you know, your candor and your own thoughts about it, because it is, you're right. We're, you know, we're health professionals and our role really is to follow the science and go where we think we can do things to help People, um, but I think just keeping in mind some of these other thoughts and, and particularly using an equity lens too, as we move forward, once we beyond, go beyond the research stages, is, is also really important. So I really appreciate your your thoughts and insights. I one more question before I I, I let you let you go. But what brought you to this work specifically, like personally, is there? something that drew you to this a personal experience or something you learned about in medical school how did you get involved in this type of work
0: um i had had an interest in this probably since i was like in high school or college uh, when i was a college student was when some of the first papers were coming out of this group that i'm a part of now and i remember reading them and being just like super interested like flabbergasted by how cool it was that you know not only could you reliably semi reliably produce this very um, meaningful or even like spiritual experience, but that also that it it, it was helpful to, to people who were trying to make big changes in their behavior. Um, at the time I was studying nutrition and, you know, there was quite an emphasis on diseases associated with lifestyle factors. And, you know, I was learning every day how we can actually reverse like diabetes and heart disease and all this stuff with something like diet alone. But actually getting people to make those changes is like a whole nother story. And so I was always curious about whether we could leverage some of these experiences in that way. Um, and also just about other aspects of it, like, oh, isn't it cool that this like rare ineffable thing can be fairly reliably produced by this drug. drug. Um, and I didn't think I would be fortunate enough to actually <laughs> make it the center of my career, at least anytime in the, like the next like three decades, but, it was quite taboo back then. and It still kind of is. Um, but I was very fortunate, I think, in, um, being at the right place at the right time and seeing this as something that would potentially be really important, um, and going for it. So, yeah. Yeah. Wow,
1: thank you. I mean, that's really interesting. Cause you're, you're right. I, I'm very interested personally in lifestyle medicine and that's kind of where, um, I, I the crux of where I practice and the behavior change piece of it is always the piece that it's sort of like, we have a lot of the evidence, we know, you know, what, but we don't know how to get people to do. Um, so I think this is, that's, that's a super interesting perspective. Um, there've like else? a, yeah.
0: there've been like a couple of population level studies that are looking into that. And there, there have been some like, you know, small signals that people who have had this like exposure to a psychedelic do have lower rates of, you know, hypertension or cardiovascular disease and other things like that. That's not to say that it can be used in a preventive way necessarily. That's sort of a separate question, but um you know, maybe there's some hope there.
1: Yeah, I I love that that there's some signals in in a certain pointing us in a certain direction and we have to See, see where the science leads us. Uh, anything else that you that I didn't ask about that you think you really want to make sure we share with our audience?
0: I think I'll just emphasize again that you know it's not just the drug that we're offering in, in this intervention. It really is like a package deal that involves quite a lot of um, psychotherapy and support. And so that's I think when you know when we look at the outcomes that we've had, I attributed in large part to that uh, to that part of the intervention as well. Um, And I also think that's part of the reason we've been able to do this in a rather safe way. Um, And we've had quite few serious adverse outcomes over the hundreds of psilocybin sessions that we've facilitated. And I'd encourage folks who are interested in our work um, or who want to see what we are recruiting for, they can check out our website, which is hopkinspsychedelic.org.
1: And future directions for your own work?
0: Um, I am ultimately interested in figuring out if and how we can make this safe and accessible for people. Um, and so right now we're, we're sort of in the middle of, of doing those larger studies. You know, Hopkins is a site for um, a multi, multi-site multi project looking at psilocybin for major depressive disorder. Um, so I think those, will, th- those studies must be done. And we're, that's what we're working on now. Um, and also just looking at um, some of those questions I mentioned earlier, you know, for folks who have recently been on Medications or are there ways that we can optimize the treatment for them and for for everyone else too. There's a lot that is really unknown about optimizing the psychotherapy around um, psilocybin and other psychedelics. So quite a lot of stuff is going on, and we're also working on a um, developing a curriculum for a clinical psychedelic um, fellowship for folks, which is another area of interest for me, sort wow. of education. So, yeah. Wow. So, stuff to
1: keep you busy for the next several decades. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> oh, great. Thank you again. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your insights and really enjoyed the conversation.
0: Yeah, this was fun. Thank you.
1: This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you.